0: You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us?
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is number 12 of Myth Behaving, and we are recording on. June 14th. I'm Mira Wilson and I'm joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Carla Clifton. Hey, hey, Carla, how are you today?
0: Oh my goodness, I am doing so well. It has just been an exciting week and actually an exciting past couple of weeks. Each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, a publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the publishing world. Plus, we have several
1: special segments related to either reading or writing or both. Shh. Be very quiet when writing books in the library of the myth behavior. And that means it's time for something from the library of the myth behavior, which is me. Today, I'm recommending Existence by David Brin. I first discovered this author back in the 90s, and I absolutely fell in love with his books. I read The Postman. I read Earth. I I read—a friend of mine had recommended him to me, and I used to go to—I went through all of his books that were published, and I— I used to go to the library. This is back when I used to read five to six books a week. And I would go into the library scouring the shelves for my favorite authors. And I always started over there at the A's and the B's. And it was Asimov and and Bear and Brynn. And then... Uh, I I would always look for his books. And, you know, of course, I I didn't, after I read everything, they they didn't come out for, you know, every year like I had hoped they would. So I was so thrilled when I got to see uh, that he had several new ones out, and I've, I've been reading Existence and absolutely loving this book. If you have not read this writer, this writer is an intelligent writer. He's a futurist. He's uh, hard science fiction. He predicts things that have actually come true since then, so it's a very exciting writer to read.
0: Well, that must mean our special guest today is Dr. David Bryn. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bryn, and thanks for joining us today.
2: And thank you, Mayor and, and Carla. It's 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 delightful. I'm uh, looking at your gorgeous uh, Skype uh, photos on my computer, um, and uh, I'm 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 very glad I don't have to compare my ugly mug to such great faces. Aww.
1: Oh, that's sweet of you to say. I'm not so sure how many other people would say that, but thank you. Yes, thank you very much. We are just so thrilled to have you chat with us today. I've I've always been a, a big fan of science fiction, and uh, as some of our listeners know that, because I, I've been reading science fiction since I was in college, actually. Uh, and of course, you write hard science fiction, but you're also known as a Futurist, could you tell our listeners just exactly what is meant by that term?
2: Well, it's actually a, a pretty awful term. Um, uh, there, there, <clears throat> there are no credentials, and there shouldn't be. Um, and so everybody hangs up their futurist shingle, and and 98 percent of what's out there is very, very flaky, because it, when you get right down to it, there's no way to predict the future. Um our ancestors in the past were obsessed with this notion. Some of our neighbors today are obsessed with the notion that the that the uh that the future is fixed um in time and in it is forecast. Um and if you'd like we can get back to that. The what what science fiction is supposed to do is explore what Einstein called Gedanken experiments or thought experiments. This is the great gift that we get from the most recent part of the human brain that we evolved. It's only a few hundred thousand years old. It's called the prefrontal lobes. These are above the eyes. And um, I like to compare them to the, uh, a biblical phrase that was said about Moses, and that is that he had lamps on his brow wow you know wow. that helped to, that helped him to defeat uh, you know pharaoh's um mystics and 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 priests and all that sort of thing lamps on his brow and and this this quotation was from the bible was people didn't know what to make of it lamps on his brow so they they they, they assumed that it was a mistranslation and they chose a word that was similar um horns and so all through the middle ages Moses was depicted having horns on his head. Uh, Michelangelo's greatest sculpture is, is his, uh, depiction of Moses. It shows him with horns on his head. But the, these lamps on our brow are what enable us to, uh, peer ahead and do the Gedanken experiment and imagine ourselves, uh, either through empathy in someone else's shoes. What must it feel like to be that person? Or, uh, to imagine, uh, what would people think if I spread this rumor, uh, by the, by the, um, uh, water tank today? What would people think if I, um, wear this today? Uh, what might happen if I try to run this yellow light? And we're constantly coming up with these thought experiments and deciding, nah, no, I don't think I'll do that. And you ladies really don't have a clue how often uh, males uh, inside their own heads go nah, 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 nah <laughs> to, to the to the crazy or awful things that occur to us. Uh, but the the thing is, we know this because they people who've had prefrontal lobotomies um, lose interest. They remain intelligent, but they lose interest in imagining themselves in the future doing things, this or that, and, and what might happen, which is why I'd rather have a free bottle in front of me than a prefrontal lobotomy. Uh, <laughs> so in any event, to, to make a long story short, the, the point is that we, we do this naturally. Some of us do it for a living. And when you've done it for a living for a while, you can't stop. So what I do is I not only write stories about the future and I say, what if this, what if that, but I also offer it in, as consultations to uh, corporations, to government agencies, to, um, to non-governmental interest groups that I approve of um, and try to figure out, you know, what are some of the failure modes that lie in front of us, because that's what futurism can do. It can't predict what's going to happen next, but it can, especially in science fiction, um, say, this is something you're going to encounter. This is something you're going to bump into. Um, Be aware of it. And and that makes for the most powerful form of science fiction, (laughs) which is called the self-preventing prophecy. George Orwell's 1984, um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and, and... and uh, Harry Harrison's "Make Room, Make Room," that turned into that awful movie, "Soylent Green, um, all the uh, uh, dr Strangelove these uh, these stories almost almost certainly transformed the world and made themselves not happen by girding millions of people to prepare and to vigorously vow that they would spend their lives dedicated to preventing it from coming true now that's powerful science fiction i can't claim a self preventing prophecy but i hope that some people who read my books come away with a better sense of what the possibilities are
1: yeah and and i think your writing is very powerful i i def- almost cautionary tales is what you're talking about correct
2: uh yeah, well it, it to an extent. Now I'm not saying that all science fiction has to be cautionary tales. Um but there is a distinction to be made between um a science fiction story or dystopia or post-apocalyptic, hey, I wrote a post-apocalyptic that is trying to actually address an issue that hasn't really been addressed in quite this way before. In the Postman, for instance, I dealt with the uh, fall of civilization and the loss that people would feel and tried to answer the Mad Max, um, male, teen, fantasy, macho, everybody's wearing mohawks and leather, um, with this is what people would do to fight back and to rebuild while there's still some living engineers around, um, if they just had the right encouragement or the right symbol. So uh, I have nothing against writing post-apocalyptic or dystopian uh, things. If there's a point the author is trying to make, like Margaret Atwood tries to make in The Handwives Tale, post-dystopian, um, I didn't particularly care for for the novel, but she was trying to shine light on some new aspect of dystopia or post-apocalyptic. Unfortunately, what's happened today is that instead of that, what you have is 9 out of 10, 95 out of 100 post-apocalyptic and dystopian tales are simply lazy authorial methods of throwing their heroes into jeopardy for 90 minutes of film or 300 pages of a novel. You create a straw man, um, uh, archetype, villainous uh, situation led by a drooling, monstrous, um, uh, simple... Uh, straw man character and a character and supply him with lots and lots and lots of unthinking henchmen. And the story writes itself. Well, what these people are doing is they are engaged in what I call the idiot plot. And that is disdaining civilization and any possibility that it can work just for their own convenience. And over time it spreads a poison, and what we're seeing now is a poisonous undermining of our civilization's great tradition and the science fiction's great tradition in the that is the notion of the problem solving can do spirit and Neil Stevenson, in his hieroglyph project, is trying to organize a bunch of us uh um uh, we're called optimists but i don't I don't cop a plea to that um Werner Vinge, uh, Greg Bear, me, Kim Stanley Robinson, a bunch of those uh, of us who, when we do dystopia, there's, there's some point to it. And we're trying to write some of the old stuff. Some of the stuff actually winds up saying, look what we could do. So, uh i'm I'm not saying that doom and Gloom doesn't have its place, and vampires don't have their place, but it gets tedious if you don't have a fresh point. Then all you're doing is finding something uh that can allow you to be a lazy writer
1: that makes
0: perfect sense. That's a very powerful
2: statement. oh well, you. <laughs> <laughs> As, as, as the uh, robot said in, in Logan's Run, it's my job.
0: <laughs> I
1: love that statement. Where do it. you see our technology in 10 years?
2: Uh, well, you know, there, what, as,
1: as I said, I, I go
2: in, I work in a range. I work in a range of the plausible and the only slightly plausible and then the only slightly not impossible and along that range today we have um a cult um they certainly have the personality of a cult even though they are um not a cult and i'm talking about the singularitarians the the folks who believe that we're all going to become gods within 10 years because we're going because of Moore's law and you know i'm talking about ray kurzweil and all these guys and when i am around mundanes I often point out that this is a real possibility that we might either uh, create artificial intelligence and it might stomp us, uh, or uh, and we've been warning about that. As I say in, my, in existence, it's unlikely that AI will stomp us because we've warned it with all these movies uh, about what will happen to it if it tries. Um, Terminator and Matrix and all of that. Uh, or it might just pat us on the head, the way very smart grandchildren pat grandpa on the head. You're obsolete, but we'll take care of you, Um, which would be disconcerting. Or, as Ray thinks is possible, we may go along for the ride. And folks can find at davidbrin.com my short story, um, uh, stones of significance, it, which is my attempt to do what's very, very difficult, and that is to write a post singularity story, a story set after we've already become gods. Um, it, when I'm around these folks, um, I get the pleasure of being the grouch. So I'm not always the optimist. Uh, it's much more fun to be the grouch, uh, which is why so much sci fi and fantasy is grouchy. Uh, it's fun and it's easier to write, um, but I, 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 I famously at one of the singularity conferences uh, uh, said, "What's what is your main task? Is it to make sane AI? Is it to do this, this? No, it, it's to prevent this." And I show a picture of Giordano Bruno being burned at the stake in 1600. He was one of the very first singularitarians. and I say, "You've got to prevent." your neighbors from being so scared of you that they do this and i proceed to to spend the next 20 minutes teaching them how to talk the bible with people who who think of it as the only source of wisdom and there are all sorts of places in the bible like the tower of babel story in which it's very clear that god meant us to um to be like him to uh, be co-creators and that um, uh, chopping off our heads in in the book of Revelations is not exactly what, was, what, what we're made for. Now, why would I go and do a silly thing like that? Because it was amusing, it was entertaining. I had them rolling in the aisles, but it also shook them up and got them to look at things from a pre- fresh perspective. And that's what I do for a living
1: and i i love that i i loved that in existence that um especially about the ais because i and that's why i asked you uh, uh, about the 10 years from now and and do you see us getting ai in 10 years
2: well um as i said it's part of a spectrum and that spectrum leads from all the singularity guys and by the way the the evil um the evil uh, uh skynet that might try to stomp us it won't come from the military um it will come from goldman sachs because they are spending far more money on um high frequency stock trading ai than all of the rest of ai research combined and it's all being done in secret and it's all being done with in moral ethos of utter predatory uh, parasitical predatory um Uh, motivations. So that is where our, uh, new overlords will come from, uh, is, uh, is Wall Street. Uh, make you feel great. But, but the spectrum, the spectrum then proceeds. Werner vingy has been talking about the, uh, the failed fantasy of AI and, and how the possibility is that we'll merely get more powerful augmentations of ourselves, but we'll remain. Um, the insipid adults that we are. Well, uh, the, the, the there are. Then, then, then I step back and I look at what makes us smart, and what makes us smart is not so much us, although we are actually scientific evidence shows that the generations are getting slightly smaller, smarter. Um. But, but what 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 really matters is civilization itself. That's what gets smarter. And the question is, can we continue to find ways to, on occasion, be smarter than the sum of our parts? Now, Adam Smith offered the great breakthrough in this, and nobody reads him anymore, certainly not the libertarians with their fanatical cult of Ayn Rand and Murray Brothbard. They have forgotten Adam Smith. But if you read Adam Smith, you realize that the guy was a genius and understood how to set up regulated and carefully managed competition, which is the great creative force of the cosmos. Those on the far left tend to, tend to hate the notion of competition. Those on the far right, uh, tend to, um, idolize it and, and dismiss the, the need to prevent it from going sour. As always happened across the six thousand years of human history, the enemies of freedom and competition and markets and democracy and science were always um, feudal lords and the owners. and And the right has gone cloud cuckoo gaga on worship of I- the idolatry of of unlimited wealth, which is what Adam Smith warned against. But in the middle, what you have is these competitive arenas that are highly regulated so that they become what are called positive-sum games. Now, if there's any one concept that your listeners should take away from here and look up, it's the positive-sum game versus the zero-sum game. It's the most important concept of our civilization, Um, Robert Wright wrote about it in his book called Non-Zero. I talk about it in existence. And that is that most games have winners and losers, and that's that. And in order to win, I must make you lose. But supposedly, markets, democracy, science, these are arenas within which we have positive some games, within which some people win more than others, but we all do well by getting better products, better policies from democracy, better knowledge of the world by the extremely competitive process called science. Um, And those who deny the power of competition are almost as foolish as those who think that we can have these benefits of competition Uh, with complete laissez-faire. Because if you look across 6,000 years of human history, what happened was the winners would always then stab to death all potential competitors, and competition would stop. Uh, So we're the geniuses. We're the geniuses this last 200 years. We've created these arenas, but it always takes renewal. Every generation, because every generation tries to become feudalism again. And it's happening right now in America.
1: And I'm going to interject something that I want to also ask about. How does your Mars project tie into that?
2: Well, I don't have so much a Mars project. I've written some fun stories about Mars. People can find them under stories at, at davidbrin.com. Um, in one of them, the uh, the Martians arrive at Cape Canaveral. And start offering people diamonds uh, to to introduce them to certain people, certain names, and one of them happens to be right there at Cape Canaveral. And I I have fun naming you know various friends in the Planetary Society, and the guy, uh, the protagonist points out Lou Friedman, who was head of the Planetary Society at the time. The Martian hands over a diamond and then goes and kills Lou. And then comes back to the guy and says, okay, now I want you to tell me where I can find Bill Nye. And it turns out they're coming back and, and they're personally murdering everybody who signed the, um, the disk that went along with Curiosity to Mars. Um, with 250,000 space people's names on it because they want revenge and they have no concept of nations. So they're just going it's killing everybody on the list. <laughs> oh Lord! <laughs> so I had fun of eviscerating all these great space heroes. Um, it's called Mars Opposition. That's the thing about science fiction: is you hit, sometimes you just do stuff for fun, and sometimes it's in the same novel. You alternate, and there are some uh, fun scenes in existence, and, and they alternate with serious, you know, mind blowing or mind expanding stuff. But. <coughs> Pardon me. As far as Mars is concerned, I've gotten in the news a fair amount because I've applied for both of the recent, um, attention grabbing Mars endeavors. Why the hell not? Um, neither of them is going to happen. Uh, one is Mars One, which is the notion of, um, getting an earlier Mars expedition by, um, beefing up the life support. That we send to Mars and eliminating the return capsule, which is by far the most expensive part of the trip. And if you eliminate the return portion of the mission, then your colonist can set up the greenhouse and all that sort of thing and have a fighting chance to set up something that is self-sustaining and that will keep her alive until the, um, until the next one comes two years later. And then the next and the next. And by the time the fourth one comes, they've got the infrastructure to get a mission that brings 10 people. So they're couching it that you're going one way in order to be a colonist. But in fact, everything has to go right. So the odds are you're going one way in order for them to set up some of the infrastructure that the next group will use. And then uh, lie down looking at the stars and they'll build a statue on that site someday. Well, I volunteered for that because by the time they're talking about I'll be 75, my kids will all be self-sustaining, and besides which, I'll have plenty of time to look over the, <laughs> what they've done and to say no. But meanwhile, uh, it's gotten a lot of conversation going. The one I'm more excited by is the Dennis Tito's attempt to try to get a hurry-up rush job mission that would launch in 2018. 2018 is just 5 years from now but what it would be is a round trip gravity assist fling by mars you wouldn't land um and there's only one launch window 2018 and the next one is 2030s um so that's be a hurry up job to use uh, elon musk's dragon capsule uh space spacex dragon capsule and some inflated uh, uh, habitats and things like that. And if that happened, they were talking about wanting a um, an older married couple. Well, the advantage is you would come home. The disadvantage is you'd be exposed to all that radiation, uh, so they'd have to make a, a tight little shelter inside. Uh, well, my wife and I are both PhDs in planetary science. la da uh, on the other hand, I happen to know the couple at, uh, JPL who are the perfect choice. Um, Dave and Joy Crisp, they're, um, together they weigh as much as I do, and I've watched them eat. Uh, they, <laughs> a handful of parched corn would, would suffice for the, for the entire mission. So, um, and oh, by the way, they're, they are, they are senior lead scientists on the Curiosity mission. So, I think if they want to go, the the ticket's theirs.
1: Wow. That's exciting. That's exciting to to, to know that that this type of thing is so close that I've been reading about for, you know, the last many decades. And this is very exciting that I may see some of these things actually take place.
2: Um, Well, you know, if the Singularity guys have their way, you may... You may uh get quasi immortality. Um although, you know, I think that women are have a lot more of a sane attitude towards these, um, I'm going to have somebody come and chop off my head when I die and drop it in liquid nitrogen ideas. Um, I think the ratio is is uh twenty males for every female who signed up for this cryonics, because of course it's ridiculous. Um even if it were made to work the um you're counting on our descendants deciding that they want you back and <laughs> I know. and the money you put in that in that special bank account at 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 uh at interest special interest rates that ain't going to be enough to convince them you had better have been you know a cool dude and, and help to make a better world. Uh, a a friend of mine is actually starting a new company that's uh, has a different approach, and that is the assumption that the body itself will not be revived, and that's the assumption that the cryonics people are doing. That's why so many people are just having their heads frozen, not the whole body. But that instead what will happen is our descendants will shave off an atom-thick layer, record everything, Shave off another layer, record everything, and they'll be able to recover the connectome, and that is where all the synapses are, where all the cells meet cells, and that that's the equivalent of the, um, of the flip-flops in a, a computer. And if you know the connectome, where everything connects to everything else, then you'll be able to create in a box an artificial version of this guy, and, um, Download the connectome of where all the synapses met synapses, and voila, a new version of you will be exist in this box, and it planted on top of a robot body, and uh, watch it complain that uh, the texture is the, the 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 sexual attachments don't work as well as he had been promised. Um, the the problems there are problems with that. At one singularity conference, I stood up and asked Ray, "Well, what about this?" Increasing evidence of intracellular computation. Now, what is that? That is the notion that some people are spreading, and there's preliminary evidence for it that there may be a hundred or a thousand or even ten thousand computations that take place in the aqueous, murky mud inside neurons for every neuron flash. In other words, the neuron flashes merely convey computations that are taking place inside the cells. Well, in that case, just shaving your brain along and finding out where the synapses were isn't going to re- resurrect you and Ray stood there, glowered at me, and said, "I don't believe a word of it." well, duh, what you believe about this resurrection mythology is in is is Directly correlated to how long you think you have to live. And Ray's over seventy. The fifty-year-old singularities shake their singularitarians shake their heads and say, "Oh, Ray, he's too optimistic. It's going to take at least twenty years." And the 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 um, the thirty-year-old guys are saying, "Oh, you guys, you know, it's actually a really tough problem. It's going to take fifty years." Uh, it always correlates with how long, how long, how how much time they have. But the thing is that that one friend of mine has come up with a new thing, and that is, you don't have to have these guys race in with their cryonic stuff, surgery, and all that, and chop off your head, uh, and and dip it in liquid nitrogen. All you need is for them to chop off your head and give it to us, and we'll plasticize it. Um, and that will, that will preserve the connectome. Uh, and so I'm just envisioning this head very much like in Futurama with, and you, you have it planted on a base with, it have the dome like Futurama, have it planted on a base that has some primitive Siri intelligence, and, um, and your grandchildren don't get your bequest unless they keep it on their mantle. Hey, it's, <laughs> Hey, it's getting dusty over here. Uh, well, you know, it's easier to maintain than paying for liquid nitrogen every year. And and th- I think that's all I have to say about that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I
0: love that. Oh, that is so gross.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but you see, here's the point. I'm male. So uh, uh, my, sensibil- my sensibleness, uh, uh, there's a limit to which it can... Uh, Overrule um, th- this this notion we have of that immortality is actually kind of cool. If only I could get it. So uh, I don't think I would turn down an inexpensive, say, two three thousand dollar contract to have my head plastisized. Uh, now we're starting to get into the range where I, I would just go, "WTF," uh, you know. Um why the heck not uh but I-, I hope i'm sensible enough not to not to um i've so far i've been sensible enough not to not to sign a cryonics contract but you know they, they, they um greg bearer wrote a great scene about these singularitarians in his extremely disturbing his most disturbing um uh book uh vitals um in which this Singularity billionaire was saying, I want to help beautiful, enthusiastic women bear children under distant suns. Whoa. (laughs) Well, if you put it that way, (laughs) I assume by then we'll be able to switch sexes and you'll get to be a beautiful, enthusiastic woman bearing (laughs) children under distant stars. Okay, you talked me into it, but it's not going to be easy. <laughs> we had a starship conference here at UCSD last month. Um, the, the, you know DARPA um, is running at a very, very low simmer, a hundred year starship program uh, to you know try to discover which are the enabling technologies that we need to work on in order to enable the technologies, to enable the technologies to then, you know, our grandchildren maybe build starships. Um, And this was the inaugural event for the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination that I helped to set up here at UCSD in San Diego. Uh, It Naturally, it's set up down here because it's the part of the United States closest to where Arthur died. And it's also the lower left corner of the country where everything loose rolls downhill and winds up <laughs> down here. How do you think I got here? Uh, <laughs> so um, in any event, uh, if any folks are interested, they should look up the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination because it's a bold new endeavor and it's going to explore what imagination is in popular culture and also neuroscience, cognitive science, how to enhance it, how to teach it, but also how to teach people to be able to tell the difference between something they're imagining and what's actually verifiably real. Because this is the great human gift, and the great human curse is our propensity for delusion. I benefit from it. I make my living off it. Um, What is it that I do for a living? I create chains of black squiggles on pressed vegetable matter. Lots of them in the case of existence. And I count on millions of people out there to pay for this... Um. This pressed cellulose to open it up and their eyes scan across these black squiggles and decrypt the incantation into star spanning explosions, deep human insights, lovey, dovey, 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 kiss, kiss, face, face. Um, romance, adventure, um, ideas you never thought of before. And to be able to decrypt an incantation, because that's what I do. Novelists are the only, in all of human history, the only industrial-grade magicians, because we create subjective reality in other people's heads when we're not even there, and we do it Just one of us. We don't have to do it with movie teams, movie-making teams. And we do it with industrial-grade quality control. And we'd make incantations. That's exactly what it is. And you're decrypting them with your eyes and turning them into these wonderful things. Well, that's the human gift. Unfortunately, it's also been our curse because we are utterly self-deluded. And the one great gift of Western civilization in these competitive arenas I spoke of before is that none of us can find our own delusions well. You can train yourself, especially if you've been a scientist, to catch 50% of them, maybe 90% of them, but we're addicted to them, so it's very hard for us to catch them. But here's the trick that will enable us to get past this horrible thing and get to the stars. I cannot find my own delusions. But other people will be happy to point them out for me. There are two types of people especially who will point out your delusions for you or for me. One is called a wife. (laughs) (laughs) The, The other is called My Enemies. God forbid that Venn diagram should ever overlap. But the point is, my enemies are willing to point out my mistakes for me for free. (laughs) Now, now, mind you, at the end of every one of my books, flip to the acknowledgements, you'll find 40 to 50 names of people I thank um, who were my pre-readers, and I and I get fierce pre-readers. Uh, if they if they go pe- come back to me and say, "Oh, I just loved it." Well, thank you very much. My ego is happy, and I take you off my list because I've learned, and I've even turned it into an aphorism: "Sito Kate, criticism is the only known antidote to error." But here's the thing about human nature: here's our curse. We hate it. We instinctively hate criticism, so in all of the past human cultures, 99% of human cultures that were shaped like a pyramid with a lordly class of kings and, and and dukes and lords and barons and priests standing at the top, they had the ability to kill the critics. So they did. And that's why they had such bad statecraft. That's why human history is so awful. And in the last 250 years, we've created a civilization in which you cannot escape criticism. Though the oligarchs are trying to reset up this pyramidal social structure as we speak. It's the great thing that's going on in America today. But that's neither here nor there. The fact is that that if you have these accountability arenas, these competitive arenas, then others will point out your criticism, your your mistakes for you. If you're wise, you get the crit- critique before you can come out with your pro- product. That's why I have 50 names at the back of every book. Because I'm tr- even though I'm a master of modern science fiction, I'm always trying to challenge myself and do something harder. Therefore, I'm always a beginner. And I always need this feedback in order, if nothing else, I need to know where people were able to put the book down, even if it was, even if they were happy, if they were, it was just to feed the cat, if it was just to do their homework, if it was just to do that report for for school, if it was to go to sleep and get a good night's sleep, (coughs) if it was to feed their children. If three or more people put down a book at the same place, I will tighten that scene. Because our relationship is a sadomasochistic one. It's my job to make it hard for you to do all those things, to put the book down. The greatest compliment you can give an author is to go up to her and say, Damn you, damn you, damn you. I almost lost my job because of you. The nothing will make an author happier. And that's why I say we have a sadomasochistic relationship. But it's that business that it's a gift economy. The thing you need most in order to succeed is what your enemies will give you for free. And there's nothing better to do when your enemies are criticizing you than to take careful notes and say, Huh, well, all right, that's bullshit, that's bullshit, you're crazy on that one. Number four here, whoa, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. I could improve my product, thanks to your criticism, and, that, and thereby better defeat you. Thanks. Watch the expression on their face, on your enemy's face, when they have been denied the satisfaction of your pain, but instead have been told that they helped you. It's a win-win for you, but here's the deal: it's a gift economy. You will then turn around and provide them with the criticism that they need, won't you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> more than likely, more than likely for sure.
1: I-, I love that take. I love that take on that. Uh, that's just such a, a a great. I didn't realize you had that many beta readers. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. But I I love that that whole concept of the the taking from the positive that you can from from those who are your detractors so i really like that
2: well it takes it it, it, you have to thicken your skin and i started out with a fairly thick one so it's easy for me to preach but you know even if you are meek and mild and i've had i've had some of the women authors come up to me um a, a few years later and they said they said i got a thick enough skin so that i could do that and and it was one of the nicest thank yous that i've ever had um because you know it's it, this is an ad, this is a male advantage um and and it shouldn't be so you women authors out there um do do that business of 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 getting it seeking it out getting the bad news getting the thick skin and and then 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 you'll be known as one of the tough babes, and then and, and everyone will respect
0: you. Alrighty, well, I believe that brings us to art of truth and mithery. Of truth and mithery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. David, feel free to answer this. Um, Since science fiction writers are writing mostly about the future and made up stuff, they don't need to understand science. Is that truth or mythery?
2: Well, um, only 10% or so of science fiction authors are scientifically trained as I am, and it's not necessary, um, but it helps in that you're exploring the effects of change on people, civilization, and in- individuals. That is the essential core ingredient of science fiction and it is the core difference between science fiction and fantasy um you can have uh, a fantasy type novel set in with spaceships and blasters as in Star Wars you can have um as in uh, Anne McCaffrey's novels science fiction true science fiction that is uh, has all the trappings of fantasy but the thing that really tells the difference is is change unrolling, and are people having to cope with it? And if that's the case, then exploring the scientific and technological implications is definitely a big help, because then you're less likely to simply write another dreary, unimaginative dystopia. Um, some of the very best is written by folks who were English majors. Greg Baer and Kim Stanley Robinson are among the finest and, and Nancy Cress are among the h- finest hard science fiction authors. Uh and yet um uh, they have they they were English majors and and couldn't parse an equation if their life depended upon it. Um so what they do is they gather the experts. It turns out it's really, really easy to go to a university and flatter some expert by saying, hey, I'll buy you pizza and a beer if you let me um, pick your brain, the cheapest consulting fee you could possibly imagine, and I will name a character after you. They'll fall all over themselves to to, to tell you whatever you need. And then, uh, you know, if they really, really help you, Then you're, then the character, uh, that you name after them can die spectacularly on, or have sex on stage. Um, you, you have all these wonderful rewards for getting expertise. So really, unless you live far, far from university, oh wait, I take that back. We live in the era of the internet. So there's really no excuse. As long as you were, have a gregarious, positive attitude science fiction was badly named. Uh, I think it should have been called speculative history because what it really does is it deals with change and extrapolates the great drama forward 10 years or 50 years or a thousand years or sometimes in parallel. Um, And and I think it might've gotten more respect as a genre if it had had that name, but you know, it's science fiction. It's sci-fi, and we're proud of it.
1: Well, it's one of my favorite genres, but I always find it fascinating why authors choose the genres they do. Why did you choose sci-fi?
2: Well, uh, I was born to be a writer. Uh, folks can, oh, by the, uh, by the way, um, folks can go to my website, davidbrin.com, and read an, uh, uh, an essay that consp- compiles 30 years of advice that I've given new writers. Um and uh the, you can do David or Google David Brin advice uh and it contains a fair amount of these things uh how to's and 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 the best advice I can come up with for for new writers um it's it uh, don't get turned off by the fact that the site is so busy um but it's just got too much stuff, like about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's That's been lately a major controversy lately. Um, but the thing is that I came from a family of writers, but I wanted to escape into science because science was where I saw the really, really honest people. This is where human beings were trying to find out not just what they, th- verify what they thought was true, but to find out ultimately what was true. And I went into science, and I got my union card. And I batted a couple out of the park. But its civilization was willing to pay me more to fall back on what I'm good at, which is blathering stories. But, you know, I try to make the stories tie in with change, with the the issue that faces us. And that is, how can we be an adaptable people and ride this surf, this this tsunami of change? And possibly, you know, turn it to our benefit. I believe science fiction is the literature, and so called mainstream is a very parochial, narrow subgenre that happens to ignore change.
1: I like that. Okay. I'm glad you do. <laughs> I do. That's a great answer. Okay.
0: It's time for Myth Print tips and tricks of the industry. All right, it's time for another one of our special segments, Mythprint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing or anything else to do with the industry. David, do you have any tips about writing science science fiction that you can share with our listeners?
2: Uh well, uh, I I I do have a, an advice article all about tips for for um would-be writers. And folks can find it um, at uh, at my website, and um, and and it's um, let me see if I can provide the uh, it's davidbrincom htm. and um, it it includes some of what I said before about being open to criticism about workshopping. One of the problems that writers face today is there are so many opportunities. It's a wonderful thing, but it means that you can sort of get quasi-published in ways that mask from you the fact that you really haven't finished your apprenticeship yet. And you haven't until you have, you know, got a mainstream book publishing contract. That doesn't mean feel ashamed if you've got something a little lower than that, like, you know, an uh, amazon connect or or um one of these uh you know other uh, modern things um along the way be proud of that make some money from that that's terrific i mean after all the 50 shades of of of, of crap um uh lady uh, uh got her start that way but the 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 point is that if you stop your apprenticeship stop getting the feedback then you're then you're then you're assassinating yourself, but folks are welcome to go go and and look it up, um, and and I hope it's of some use. Thank
1: you. I'm looking forward to reading that. What do you love most about what you do?
2: Ah, uh, well, um, I my wife would say that I love most the fact that I can shuffle about in slippers and shorts. Um, and act like a retired person. Um, but, uh, when I am in full creative mode, um, I love the way I can feel that I have multiple personalities. And late at night, I'm, I'm creating a scene. I'm creating a moment that has never happened before with characters who are expecting me to channel something cool, something interesting, even if they're in the middle of being tortured and dying. Something really interesting and memorable. And then the next day, uh you know, I bring my tea to the and I, I sit down and I and the editor part of me sits down and say, okay, what did Boy Genius do last night? Oh God! I've got to fix this, and to feel this interplay, this back and forth, makes me feel like, uh, say, the character in Kiln People in my novel, Kiln People, where you can duplicate yourself. Um, which, by the way, I think people would enjoy very much. Um, the uh, the chance to be multiple selves, and if you can tap this intrinsic, multiple aspect of yourself, then your life will be larger, and you'll engage in mutual criticism inside yourself that will catch more of your own mistakes. But then again, perhaps I'm simply crazy. I, I (laughs) I, I, I do know this. All of my previous lives ended by age 16. Because the one thing that that continues from reincarnation to reincarnation is not memory, it's personality. And I had this personality, this contrarian, um in-your-face, question-everything personality in all my previous lives. And so naturally I was killed by the age of time I was 16. This civilization is the first time I got to live, grow up, have kids, uh be honored, paid for my for for what comes naturally to me. Uh, uh, every year government agencies fly me east to poke at and criticize them. Um, and by the way, please don't go online and say Bryn really believes in reincarnation. It's a metaphor. <laughs> uh, okay, so but in any event, you know, be, uh, uh, one thing I often sign in my, um, whenever anybody gives me a copy of Kiln People to sign, is I always write, uh, to Fred, be many, David Brent. If I can leave, Beautiful. If I can offer the audience one piece of wisdom, go out there and be many. Be larger than you are
0: love 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 that answer that is so good well after so many books and i'm guessing now you probably have your writing routines established and is there anything in that process that you don't like
2: well you know uh i don't like the fact that i am so easily distracted uh, by so many uh, really cool things uh you know, people uh, say, you know, come and do this Skype thing, for example. Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> You're special. The, uh,
1: Thanks. <laughs> the,
2: the, num- the number of distractions has uh, gone up and, and so is having teenagers. So the, the problem is that it's grown, the time between books has grown. And my wife says to me, look, all that's going to be left of you in a hundred years is these books um and you know man what a hard woman um but <laughs> she's great but the the fact is that that um uh the thing that i don't like is that i i I've, I've lacked i've lacked discipline and i'm going to have to find it
0: okay well you know that leads us to the next question and i think i know the answer to this one Authors work in so many different ways. And our question is, are you a planner that outlines everything and makes extensive notes? Or are you a pantser flying by the seat of your pants and letting your books go wherever they will? Um a, a bit of both. Um I have plotted out things in
2: advance, and it works very well. And I'm angry with myself for not doing it more. I for instance, Greg Benford and I plotted out Heart of the Comet. And um, the novel I did to tie together all the loose ends in um, in um, Isaac Asimov's universe, you know, we did the um, second foundation trilogy, The Asimov Estate, asked Greg Bear, Greg Benford, and me to create a trilogy that would tie up his loose ends. Uh, the 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 novels relate to each other but they each of them stands alone as well and my novel foundation's triumph attempted to tie together all the loose ends that that Isaac had left um including from obscure uh Asimovian novels like the currents of space and the stars like dust and uh Janet Asimov kindly said that it was uh, by far her favorite of the um any of the Asimovia Books that had been written by non Isaacs. Um, But in that case, I I plotted it out in great detail and that made it go very quickly. Um, So I can do that. But there's, it's tasty and fun to dive in and to let the characters develop. And this fits with my um, abilities as a writer where I don't really begin well but as any of my readers will attest the la- from reading the last third of my novels i really know how to how to get a built up momentum going and 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 end a book really well uh which is fine for me because my process is to rewrite the beginning five or six times but the end seldom needs anything more than touch ups which is why I would have been a great a collaborator with Robert Heinlein, because um, his novels, he knew how to begin a story spectacularly. I tell new writers they should simply retype the first three pages of almost any Heinlein novel, and they will learn how to set a scene. Uh, don't reread it, because it's an incantation. If you read the incantation, uh, you'll just experience it. But if you retype the first three pages of a Heinlein novel, then you'll learn a lot uh what he what, what should have been done if he had lived longer was he should have written the first half of novels, and I should then have finished them <laughs> 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 But isn't that an arrogant thing for me to say? You know? Not at all no. Papa, Papa heinlein Papa Heinlein um. Uh, Papa Heinlein should have collaborated with me. He would have done better stuff. Well, it's pretty damn arrogant. Uh,
1: Okay, so um, I I hope that answered the question. It did, indeed. It did. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your next project?
2: Well, actually, there's important news on that. I'm going to try to write the, um, the, the sequel to Star Tide Rising that I've held people off for 30 years. So you know, I got to get those people off that planet.
1: <laughs> On behalf of readers everywhere, thank you.
2: Well, yeah, well, it's nothing like the sigh of relief being I'm hearing from my 30 year old, uh, 30, my 30 years ago self who's saying, "About time, you old fart." <laughs> uh, I think you should always be sensitive to your other selves, not only in parallel, but in the future and in the past. At least I'm trying to teach my 16-year-old to pay attention to the 36-year-old accomplished father of my grandchildren that he's going to be and to actually start laying seeds for all of that. But it's a hard thing to get people to do.
0: Oh, yeah. Good luck with that, with a (laughs) 16-year-old. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to do and um you know uh, as soon as we get off here I'm going to try to clear some Oh yeah I of course I I I've been asked by the New York Times to uh, write a piece about the NSA because of course what we didn't mention is um you know I became an astrophysicist um and I've written papers on human evolution um but uh nothing prepared me academically to become a world expert on transparency, privacy, and freedom. But my nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, is one of the only public policy books from the 20th century still in print and still selling more. And that's about this issue of, you know, open information flows in the modern world. And I wrote it because I was sick and tired of so many misconceptions about this concept, and I've been asked to write. So that's what I'm going to be spending the next week on. Ah, there are all these damn distractions. And oh. so I really need the machine from killing people. I really, really, that, that novel was a cry for help. Well, I, I, I look forward to reading them both. Well, you, you go ahead and be many.
0: Excellent!
1: Excellent! <laughs> I love that. I love that inscription.
0: Okay, well, we're going to kind of skip ahead a little bit, and we're going to go straight to having lots and lots of fun. If you could have a dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include and why? Well,
2: um, I named. I named. We named our firstborn after Ben Franklin. Um, and he, uh, you know, he's, he's, in my opinion, the greatest, uh, person for 300 years. Uh, I'd certainly enjoy talking to Adam Smith. Uh, if the translation wasn't a problem, I'd, I'd love to, um, talk to Pericles because he's my ancient world, uh, hero and I believe that he, um, if Thucydides um, uh, translated his words correctly, I think he was uh, he was he was the the most modern mind of the ancient days. Um, I had some others written down i I certainly would be interested in um, Hypatia of Alexandria. Um, people can re- rent the movie Agora and watch uh, rachel white 's um, uh portray her um fantastically interesting person from the um from the ancient world um george marshall uh, i in nineteen ninety nine i I wrote to the time magazine saying, How could you name anybody but George Marshall as the man of the of the twentieth century and uh, folks can look up my essay about that and be amazed at this uh, incredible role model. Uh, more of a role model than any of the others I mentioned because, um, the one thing that he did better than anybody else was grown up. Whereas Ben Franklin was a genius. He wasn't always grown up.
0: True. Which
2: is, which is great. Which is great. You know, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for, for everything. Um, uh, and, 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 and vive la différence. Um, and speaking of which, uh, there's, I suppose, uh, um, Barry Chase. Um, she was one of the greatest exotic dancers of all time and a, and a, and a brilliant woman. And I think uh, the dinner party would be, uh, much, much more interesting with, um, uh, with Ben and Pericles, uh, preening and trying to impress her. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> You know this, it it, it it it, and 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 Hypatia of Alexandria glowering at them. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. I'm turning it into a scenario for a scene. You are. It's fun. Keep
1: going. You got no, one more, no, I think.
2: Uh, I I one, Oh, jeez. Have uh, one more. Uh,
1: did I lose uh, count?
0: I, uh yeah, you lost count. <laughs> We'll we'll go with that. (laughs) Everyone has their own personal myths, things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true, their own personal myth behaviors. What myth behavior do you believe that absolutely is not true?
2: Well, you know, uh, look, we live in a world, and especially in the science fiction field, that is um, uh, flooded with um, gossip. Uh, and naturally, everybody feels that the gossips that spread about them is, is unfair. Uh, in my case, there is a sub-cult in our field that, uh, uh spreads, um, things that are diametrically and disprovably opposite to truth, and I've offered a thousand dollars. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, everybody has this problem. Um, the one thing that's totally true about me is that I talk and I talk, (laughs) I talk vigorously and people assume that it's, you know, that, that it's because I'm overbearing and egotistical. But the fact of the matter is I'm around other people who are saying interesting things. I shut up. What I am fetishistic about is having to have something interesting floating in the air, and if no one else is providing it, I'll just spew it out there. Um, and sometimes at um, you know panels at conventions, that can seem overbearing, and i I, I try to compensate for it. Um, but I know that that can be unpleasant at times. But then again, you didn't ask me for true confessions. (laughs) You asked me for what's not true. Correct. (laughs) Um, I don't think that anybody is going to find, no matter how hard they search, a verifiable case of my deliberately doing anybody else any harm. It's a and, good
1: one i don't think anybody's ever answered that question that way before wow. and
2: and that is something that i had not thought of until i had to defend myself and the fact of the matter is that lots of other people have it worse than i do and, and have had to defend themselves worse than i have and uh, but you know i recently realized that one day and um I guess, you know, it's not for me to say such things, except, you know, you asked.
1: Perfect. We did. We did. And you already well, well, look, told us that the, the myth behavior that people believe. Now, is this the myth behavior, the talking? Is that the myth behavior that people believe that is true?
2: No it's only a small group, and I shouldn't have said anything I, 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 you know, but, but you asked you asked you know this the questions elicited a specific reflex in as a matter of fact, I'm generally a pretty happy guy i'm I, I, I think I'm pretty popular, so you know I wish I could edit out what I just said, but the point is the point is that you know my role model in such things, and I know I can't live up to it, is the great Paul Anderson, P-O-U-L Anderson. He wasn't the, the greatest writer who ever lived. He, uh, you know, he, he was the greatest storyteller. All of his, no- Hugo's and Nebula's were for novella, or novel at length. Why? Because that's the length that a tribal storyteller would have told around the campfire. And he told story perfectly. The arc was always perfect. Um, But the other thing was, he was such a nice guy, such a gentleman. And I can only aspire to be that good a storyteller. I know I'm not. And I can only aspire to be that nice a fellow. And I know I'm not. Um, but by trying to do both, I think I do better at both, and I think that folks out there should do that. They should pick a role model of goodness, a role model of skill, a role model of success, and sometimes the role model of success can conflict with the role model of goodness, uh, but if you do that, and they're sitting inside your head, they're sitting on your shoulder. Well, that can be helpful. on the other hand, uh, if you're hearing their voices, that can also be a sign of psychosis <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but 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 but, but, hey, I'm cool with that. <laughs> uh, I'm so sure you are. I cannot tell you. This has been such a pleasure for us. You have been such a joy. You have enlightened us in more ways than you'll ever imagine. We really appreciate you taking time to be with us today and skyping it with us. And you've just given us so much and we do appreciate you sharing. uh, I, well, I I I I
2: am a sucker for um for intelligent um, uh, wonderful, charismatic ladies. So you know, your voices, uh, your voices drew it out. Whatever, whatever creativity was all you're doing.
1: Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Not true, people. <laughs> um, you have been a pleasure to talk to. You've given us such a fascinating look at what you do and behind the scenes. And I, I greatly appreciate that.
2: Sure thing, and 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 best to to all of you.
0: Excellent. Well, remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information on David Brin. You can go to his website at com. We have links um, to his books straight off of our website at MythBehaving. You can read his bio and find links to all of his social media and all of that information.
1: And don't forget, you can
0: download this episode and take it with you on
1: iTunes, or you can listen to it right on the MythBehaving.com website.
0: Please make, take a moment to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That's how we move up the iTunes ladder.
1: And you can subscribe to Mythbehaving right on iTunes, iTunes as well.
0: Thank you for and, tuning and, in. And,
2: and, and I have an iTunes channel, too.
0: Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Well, we'll get that link up, too. We'll make sure All you guys right. have that link, okay? Well, thanks for tuning in to Myth Behaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare, and we are Myth Behaving, where reality meets
1: fantasy. See you soon.